Hi, this is Patti Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact about my guest today, we sat outside in Bryant Park in front of a live audience in the summer of 2023 as part of the Reading Room Book series in Bryant Park and had the most wonderful conversation. I'm so thrilled to welcome Paul Rudnick and Joel Thurm to the podcast, both of whom have new books that you must run out and get. They are completely different yet completely in sync as um, a paired reading series. I'm so honored to have done this event live with all of you incredible people who showed up in the live audience and all of you listening at home. I have been such um, a lucky duck to spend my summer interviewing incredible authors and reading so much. It kept me off my phone and happily back to holding a book and turning pages and I hope as you listen to this, you are inspired to do the same. Welcome, Paul and Joel, to Little Known Facts. A-OK. A-OK. Welcome, everyone, to the Little Known Facts podcast. <laughs> My guests today are Paul Rudnick, author of Farrell Covington and the Limits of Style, and Joel Thurm, author of Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season, Confessions of a Casting Director. Paul Rudnick is a novelist, playwright, essayist, and screenwriter. His plays have been produced both on and off Broadway and around the globe. He is a regular contributor to The New Yorker, and his articles and essays have also appeared in The New York Times, Esquire, Vogue, and Vanity Fair. Mr. Rudnick's screenplays include In and Out, Sister Act, the screen adaptation of Jeffrey and Adam's Family Values. He's currently writing a screenplay called Ex-Husbands based on an original idea by Billy Eichner for Amazon. We cannot wait. <laughs> Joel Thurm is one of the most accomplished, accomplished casting directors in Hollywood and perhaps the planet. <laughs> Early on, his instincts proved beyond reproach when he recognized John Travolta as much more than a teen idol, casting him in the TV movie The Boy in the Plastic Bubble. He was vice president of talent and casting for both Paramount Television and NBC for many years. With his insider's knowledge, irreverent style, and biting wit, all of which are apparent in his incredible book, Thurm tells the stories of his key involvement in such iconic movies and shows like Grease 
Airplane, Cheers, The Golden Girls, and so many more. And I am so honored to have both of you here. And I was thinking so much about how to connect the two of you. Basically, the way they work it here is they send me books, I read them, I love them, and then try to figure out how to create sort of a cohesive conversation. And I think the two of you have for decades now been so impactful on our culture and our consumption of culture. And so in kind of looking at your humble beginnings in a way, you from Brooklyn and you from New Jersey, um, and sort of the idea of people who kind of grow up in the business and then the idea of people who just loved it so much and found a way in and a way to sustain a career and to be willing to change lanes and be flexible along the way. So, hey, thank you for being here. How thrilling for me. And I want to just begin by asking you both sort of what was the... Um, light bulb moment like where were you when you were like and I'm gonna write a book about it so maybe I'll start with you Paul well you, this um, Farrell Covington is a book that has been percolating in my brain for decades actually there were so many topics that I had experienced and lived through that I wanted to uh, get at as richly as and emotionally as possible, including the theater, including my time in Hollywood, including my time in college. And it's a, a, at the center of it is this epic gay romance that takes place over the last 50 years. So it's about life as we know it and then life as I went through it. So, and I think something Joel and I have in common that we, I mean, he's a legend in, 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 in show business. And I, I spent, spent my time there as well. Um, I think some Someone just commented that in the uh, when you write novels or when you work in the theater, you learn, and that when you work in California, you earn, <laughs> and that is God bless it true. Um, so yeah, so I and I've also been a lifelong show business addict, like so many kids from New Jersey. I was a theater rat. I couldn't watch enough movies, couldn't own enough original cast albums. So it was, it wasn't even a transition. It was just, I, I guess I always assumed, never divided the world into gay people and straight people, but into people who lived in New Jersey and people who lived in New York. Which is why I'm so happy to be here with all of you. I have to say before I forget, I shared the exact same thing you just said, but it was Brooklyn, not Jersey. I knew that I had to get out of Brooklyn. It was, it was that simple. And um, <clears throat> I also, you know, led a rich fantasy life, you know, and I would listen to show albums on the radio at three o'clock every afternoon. There was, a, there was a station that played that. I gotta talk into this thing so I can't I, look, exactly. I'm sorry. I shouldn't be, I shouldn't Anyway, be but, the, but the infidus, and I'm, I am dropping names, but they're true. The reason that this book came about was, um, I was very fortunate when I was head of talent at NBC to have my secretary, who I had for five years, her name was Arlen Phoenix. Now, you may recognize the last name because two of her sons became very famous, two kids that I started their careers, River and Joaquin, a.k.a. Leaf Phoenix. And... <clears throat> Uh, Leaf was, uh, they were about 11, there were three, uh, Leaf was about eight years old when I worked with his mother. And um, 
one day I was he lives only like five minutes up the hill from me in Laurel Canyon in L.A. And his mother was in town, and we were having dinner at uh, at Joaquin's house. I'll keep going back and forth because I don't know which is going to come out first, Joaquin or Leaf. And after you know, ninety-seven glasses of wine, things began to open up, and um, I started telling his mother and I started telling war stories from our time together at NBC. And Joaquin is sitting there laughing and laughing, and you can't curse, so I'll change your word. But he turned to me and said, man, you've got to write this stuff down. <laughs> so I went home, since I was already semi-juiced, and I started writing. I just started writing and writing and write two-thirds of the first chapter, and that's how it started. So uh, that's, that's uh, I, did I answer the question? I, I believe 100%. <laughs> um, yeah. Joaquin was not the inspiration for you to write your book, Paul, but it was, in nope. fact, not but inadvertently, but many other things. First of all, let me just say this. When you open up Joel's book and learn that not so long ago there was a farm in Brooklyn, like when we think of Brooklyn now and Williamsburg and Dumbo and all of the hipster stuff going on, we're talking about in his lifetime growing up and his grandparents having a farm. So you really, like people talk about like leaving the farm in Iowa to come to New York, like you left the farm in Brooklyn as if you were in Iowa to get to Manhattan. Did you come and see Broadway shows? Both of you, I'd like to ask you this because you both had the proximity. I don't know what the funds were, but to come and see Broadway. What was your introduction to Broadway? I can do that because I'll forget if I don't say it. Okay, you go first. My first Broadway show, I think I was seven or eight years old. And my mother and father would go. My mother and father would go to theater to, to shows once a year or twice a year, and I would just tear the programs to shred reading them. And um, my brother got very sick, and my mother had to stay home, so my father took me. And the show was Guys and Dolls in the last row of the balcony. <laughs> and the thing that I re- well, two things happened. Well, well, first one was what I remember most about the show was I uh, was when the chorus girls in the bushel and a peck number stripped down to daisies. Two here and one bigger one down there. And, and it was just, it was just a, it's one of those sights that you, you, just remember, you just remember. But the thing about it was there are no coincidences. Many, many years later, I met Jimmy Burroughs, Abe's son, and began working with Abe Burroughs and Jimmy Burroughs, and Jimmy Burroughs and I are still friends in California. So uh, there are no coincidences. Right. Uh, as Full I was circle moments. Told. Full circle. Right. What about you? What was your first? Well, I had, my parents were lifelong theater goers, and they, every year on my birthday, I was allowed to pick a show. And I had an unerring, unerring instinct to pick the biggest bombs of all time. <laughs> but the best thing was because I was so young, I didn't care. Anytime the curtain went up, I was just in heaven. So, but it was, I mean, producers should have consulted me. I was like an oracle. Um, I said, let's go see Dear World, um, which I actually loved. And I just thought it was just done at Encores. It was fantastic. So I was, you know, in Clover. But yeah, my, and my parents even had, I remember they had the 78s from the original production of Oklahoma, things like that that I just lived for. Um, So it was, although the odd thing was, I I grew up in Piscataway, New Jersey, and my my big Jewish family acted as if coming into New York would require a covered wagon. (laughs) 
they would it was going to take days and you would need you know, the, the Pony Express and it took 45 minutes on the train so it was just the biggest treat you know that was the reward so and it remains so to this day so I what I was telling Paul before we started talking is that if you read his newest novel and you know anything about Mr. Rudnick there are a lot of things it's sort of delicious because there are a lot of sort of thinly veiled references to your own career because the protagonist in your book becomes a writer in the story and so it's really thrilling if you know your career to go oh this is Jeffrey and this is I hate Hamlet and this is in and out in all that way so that's just really fun by the way and if you don't know anything about Broadway or his work it doesn't matter in terms of it has like a a little bit of like the way we were in there there's 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 sort of a lot of um Love, let me just say, at the center of both your books, which couldn't be more different, fiction and and memoir, um, there's such tremendous love for the people in the stories and the world of creatives, right? And so I want to just talk a little bit because many people are here because they're fans of yours personally, um, but also a lot of people are here because they're interested and love writing. And you write in a lot of different genres, as it were. And so can you talk a little bit about the, the structure of this book, how you write a novel in a way that's different than writing the screenplay of Jeffrey? Talk to me about how you approach a novel versus other ways that you write. Well, it's, I find one of the very few things I've learned in life is to let the material and the characters dictate the form, to not say, no, I am commanding this story to appear on screen or on stage. Because, for example, when I moved, when I was living in off Washington Square in John Barrymore's old apartment. Of course you I, were. Uh, well, I remember the real estate listing back when there were such things called <laughs> it a medieval duplex. <laughs> and it had been reconfigured with all sorts of gothic touches it was wonderful and it was the top floor of a brownstone and while I was living there I thought okay this Barrymore the ghost everything it was demanding to be written about and I started it as a novel and it I, it didn't wasn't landed correctly because I thought these are theatrical characters it's a single setting this really wants to be a play so it became a play called I Hate Hamlet and I remember one night we actually had the entire Broadway cast in my apartment for a seance <laughs> Uh, to try to contact the spirit of Barrymore. And it was, uh, I remember we had a rent-a-psychic who you actually <laughs> charged by the hour, and the wonderful Celeste Holm was in the cast. And the psychic assigned each of us a spirit animal over our heads who would tell us what to do. And the psychic made the enormous mistake of having Celeste's spirit animal tell her not to wear fur. <laughs> She was wearing a mink full-length mink coat at the time. <laughs> so I thought, you know, you're not really a very good psychic. But it was, um, <laughs> it was that insane combination of theater and history and Broadway. So, um, yeah, so, and, and with, with Farrell Covington, it was a sense of I want to get at all of this and at the way it intersects and at the way as a writer, if you need to make a living, you're going to end up in Hollywood if you're lucky. That, so it was um, that journey. And I realized one of the, the benefits of getting older is you've actually been through this. And I thought I could speak from experience. And it's, it's fiction. But I drew on so many people I love and on experiences that were often insane as well. 
I just, there was one thing I was thinking about actually coming up here in the car. I remember having a meeting in LA at the very peak of Michael Jackson's fame, before the lawsuits and, and some of the surgery, but when he was the hottest performer on the planet. So Hollywood was dying to figure out a way to use him in the movies, but they knew he was kind of problematic because he was so specific. And I was brought into this meeting where they told me we are going to make the most successful movie of all time, which is how every meeting begins, <laughs> and it's going to star Michael Jackson, the megastar of, of the age, and we only have one absolute certainty you can't let him talk <laughs> and i remember asking the question okay is he going to sing and they said of course and i said how come he could sing but he can't talk and that was kind of the end of the meeting <laughs> um and as you'll note that michael jackson didn't have a great film career so that was never really solved <laughs> I know I, both of you have decided, rather than reading from your book, that maybe you would share stories, and I appreciate that. It's hard to be read to in the middle of Bryan Park. But Joel, as, as Paul speaks, was there, is there a story from the book that you can share with us that comes to mind? Well, the, yeah, I think the most, uh, the most interesting, story, interesting story you still have to read because it goes on forever, and that was about the casting of Greece. But the shorter one is the Rocky Horror Show. And um, I, uh, God, I don't even know where to begin now. I'm nervous. Um, uh, it was, um, how do I, Rocky Horror Show, if you may not know, started in England, uh, kind of in an off-Broadway situation there. And then the, instead of moving to New York, which would have been the logical step for some reason, um, it, it started in L.A. Not for some reason, because a man named Lou Adler bought all of the rights, and he owned a nightclub called the Roxy, and he put this in the Roxy. Huh. So um, where we were, uh, we did a, a stage version of it, and which was successful. It ran for nine months at the Roxy, um, and Tim Curry was in it, and I found a guy in New York uh, by the name of Meatloaf. So they, you know, they both are in it, and they both made it into the film, obviously. But um, when I was casting the stage play, I wanted Barry Bostwick to play Brad. And Barry said, I'm in L.A. to do movies, not to do this for $2 a night. <laughs> and he said, but if they ever make a movie, I'm there. <laughs> so they were making a movie, and indeed, he was there. Uh, Tim was obviously going to be set in it, and uh, Meatloaf too. But uh, when it came to the rest of when it came to doing the, um, the movie, I, I had met Susan Sarandon in New York, uh, while I was casting for David Merrick. Anyway, I'm now going to give a little break and say I had a little dinner party, spaghetti and meatballs on laps, in my little apartment in Laurel Canyon. And among the guests were Susan and her husband, her then-husband, Chris Sarandon, Barry Bostwick, a personal manager by the name of Bob Lamond, who some of you in this will, will recognize. And it was, you know, all pretty uneventful. At some point, Chris Sarandon went in to watch a movie on television, and that was it. The next day, I get a call from Bob, who says, well, did you see what happened last night? And I said, no. He said, well, Susan and Chris broke up, and now she's with Barry Bostwick. 
Bostwick. <laughs> and I had no idea, but it was good for me because um, I wanted Susan for the, for, the, for, the, for the movie. And when I called ICM, her brand new important agents, I was greeted with, oh, no, 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 no. This is not the kind of project that we want for her, and she certainly won't audition. So when you tell me that, then the devious Joel Thurm comes into play. <laughs> and it's always there. And so I figured, okay, I called Barry, and uh, who Barry didn't know it, but he really had the part because the people who were doing the movie knew him and wanted him. But I said to Barry, just please bring Susan along with you, and then I'll take care of everything else. So Barry comes on stage to read, and he's reading with me. And after two sentences, I stopped. And I said, this is ridiculous. Why are you reading with a 30-year-old balding Jewish man when there's this beautiful woman in the audience that you could read with? Susan, could you come up and help me with this? So Susan came on stage and basically started reading with Barry. It was not an audition. She was helping me out. And that's how the two of them got in that movie. That's incredible. <laughs> I mean, his book is just filled, you know, uh, Ted and Ted Danson and Mary have been on my show and oh. it is, you know, known throughout the land that Cheers was such a game changer for him. Can you just quickly... Without cursing, I'm not sure I could tell you the can, story. That, don't worry. As I told you guys, <laughs> Harvey Firestein was here. The no cursing rule went out the window pretty quickly. Got it. Um, so can you just also just share... I mean, it's funny now to imagine someone having to fight for Ted Danson to be in that part. <laughs> well, Why was there such resistance? Well, the, the Ted Danson wasn't the character as written in that script. He was older, and um, the, the, the perfect person as written in the script was William Devane, Bill Devane. And, uh, but, you know, I... I when it, when it came to casting, I very often hired assistants who looked this way because I always looked that way. And, um, and I thought, you know, it, God, I'm getting off track, but I thought Ted would be wonderful in this. In fact, when, when the project get a go-ahead, I said to Jimmy Burroughs and the Charles Brothers, look, you're going to run in, you're going to see everybody, but you're going to wind up with Ted Danson and Shelley Long. I was prophetic. Yeah. <laughs> and what it came down to at the end was between Will Devane, William Devane, and Ted Danson, both obviously wonderful actors. And it came down to a face-off between me and the new head of NBC, a man by the name of Grant Tinker, who was my boss uh, when I was casting the Bob Newhart show and other things for MTM. So, you know, when in casting, nobody ever wants to speak after the audition. And, but, I, you know, since they were paying me, I spoke first. And I just said, look, to me, it's no contest. It's Ted. And then Grant Tinker disagreed with me. He said, well, how can you dismiss William Devane? He's one of America's greatest actors. And he said, yes, he is, but not for this part. And we kept going round and round, getting nowhere. Nobody, we were in a little deadlock. And finally, I just lost. I said, Grant, the truth is more women in America are going to want to fuck Ted than fuck Bill. <laughs> <laughs> And as I said that word, you could see Grant Tinker, who always wore like an Easter-colored uh, cashmere sweater around his shoulders. It was like he was clutching his pearls when I said that. <laughs> but it worked. Absolutely incredible. Um, in your book, you talk about a play that feels very much like the story you just told of I Hate Hamlet. In real life, 
how did you go from I want to be a writer to I now have a Broadway play starring Celeste Holm? What what was the lucky break? What was the thing that happened that made that show something most of us here still know about? Well, it was weirdly real estate. It was moving into that apartment, which which was sheer luck. Also, I had a wonderful agent at the time who's no longer with us named Helen Merrill, no, and Helen had been in New York for, for decades by that point. When I told her I was moving into the Barrymore apartment, she said, Oh, Schnooky, perhaps you have found my hairpins. And I said, What? And she turned, she claimed, and I think this was true, that she had had an affair with Barrymore's son-in-law <laughs> on the premises. So all of these incidents started to mount up, and that was when I said I surrendered and I said, "Okay, I'm going to write about this." And that was the play that attracted the attention of Broadway, wonderful Broadway producers. So that was the sheer odd luck of moving into this then very cheap brownstone and being willing to walk up that many flights of stairs. Um, so. Oh, and actually, that, that then became a much wilder story because we hired to play Barrymore Nickel Williamson, who was a truly great actor and a world-class Olympic-caliber drunk. He was the first non-stop alcoholic, and he actually, he, I always wish he was a charming rogue, that he was Peter O'Toole, but he wasn't. He was a very nasty man. <laughs> and I remember during rehearsals, he would do things like, he invited me to his apartment where he played an entire rock musical he had written based on how much he hated his ex-wife. <laughs> and he would sing the songs and then turn to me and go, oh, Paul, wasn't that brilliant? And I would go, oh, yeah. And because uh, you, you know, you know, he also, had, I remember it at the first meeting with the producers and Nickel and myself and our director. And Nickel swore that he had not had touched a drop for over two years and on the table at his place there were three empty bottles of beer and an empty bottle of wine and I thought is no one going to say anything because I'm not so and then Nickel became very upset that there was anyone else in the play (laughs) Um, I'm sure Joel has experienced this when you have actors who really don't care for other performers. And we had the rest of our cast was, were delightful people who were very long suffering. But Evan Handler, who later went on to, to great success, especially on Sex in the City, but he was playing the young lead. And he and Nicole at one point had a big onstage duel. And they had to practice it for, you know, months. And then they had every night they had to do a warm up, which Nicole immediately started to ignore. One night during previews, Nickel called me up at 3 a.m. and said he felt that we should fire Evan Handler and that he would play both roles. <laughs> and, I, and I said, Nickel, I'm not sure how that would work given they were both on stage at the same time. But Nickel didn't think that was the problem. He said, oh, I know what you're thinking, that people might think I'm not quite young enough for the other role. From the stage, that won't be a problem. <laughs> And so it was just loony where you start, you couldn't figure out even how to answer these questions. And the first act peaked with a big climactic sword fight, a duel all over the stage between these two characters. And one night, Nickel just was incensed. He was just pure Nickel. And he took out after Evan for real with the sword and stabbed him and drew blood. And I was not there that night, although everyone else in New York was, because people (laughs) kept claiming to be. But the next morning, it was the full front page of the Post with the headline, I hit Hamlet. 
and the New York Post poetry that said, Broadway star swats other actor on the butt, which was where he'd stabbed him. So this was insane. And now when Evan very wisely had left the performance at intermission and did not return for the rest of the run. So his understudy played and who was also terrific. But Nickel at that point, then he just then all bets were off and and he, he was firing people right and left. So it was a very interesting introduction to Broadway and the theater and, you know, worth every second. But it was nuts. Well, I know Evan, and uh, oh, wonderful man. Everything about that is true. That's exactly <laughs> what happened. But he walked off stage and never came back. Um, I want to talk for a moment about because it features so heavily in both your books being gay in your careers, being gay at a certain time, being gay in Hollywood, being gay in New York, then being gay in New York and Hollywood, in Paul's <laughs> case, um, and just to sort of have a, a conversation maybe between the two of you, since it's your lived experience, whatever sort of, I mean, it's, it's you know, AIDS is a huge part of your beautiful books. You, you talk about sort of the people you lost at the time. Uh, it is impossible for you guys to have the careers you have without the impact of what it was to grow up at that time. And maybe how it feels different now, if in fact it does, you touch on it in your book, Paul, with a conversation. I, I think of him as the Paul character having a conversation with a younger queer character in your book. And sort of the language used to describe the experience. Anyway, perhaps the two of you could just speak to it together. Um, and but what separately. Together, <laughs> yeah. but separately. Not like a duet. By, yeah. Not a duet. <laughs> and keeping your, your heads very close to the mic and not looking at each well, other. Well, in my case, it was very simple. I was never in, so I never had to come out. Okay. You know, I, I've always been myself. I was a non-athletic kid growing up in Brooklyn. But I had street cred because of my grandfather's farm. I could do something that nobody else could do, which was take kids to look at a bunch of filthy, smelly cats and help set the haystack on fire, which we did many times, but we always put the fire out. So um, I just I just drifted, and, and I, at one point, I mean, through job after job after job, everybody who I worked with knew I was gay. It was never a secret. And then I got to David Merrick's office, where I started in a business capacity and then was made the casting director and was told by Merrick, I said, why are you doing this? I don't know anything about casting. And he said, well, you may not, you, 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 you do know about casting, but you don't know you know about casting. Right. So that, that was that how, but again, Merrick was kind of homophobic. I mean, cocksucker and a few others were the words that he, uh, you know, it was, it was it, it, he cursed a lot, let's put it that way, uh, and not very kindly, and, um, but, so, um, but I, you know, I never had that kind of confrontation with him, I wasn't there because of my sexuality, and that wasn't part of it, so... And when I, when I came to California, same thing. Uh, a wonderful woman who I have to talk about named Pearl Bailey was starring in Hello, Dolly! at that time, and she adopted me as, as her kid, and she brought me to California, but I never changed who I was. Mm -hmm. uh, to this day, there are no out gay movie stars. There are out gay television stars, but there are no out gay movie stars. I think because of financial reasons, basically. So, um, 
I don't know. Give me an ending, Paul. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm, I have my experience was similar to Joel's in that I was always out, and the arts were very welcoming to gay people, except in terms of subject matter, and that was always the greatest barrier, that there were always so many gay people in every area of every entertainment profession. But if you wanted to put gay stories on the screen, that was still considered impossible. And often the argument was that, oh, we would love to, but the economics don't make sense. And then when you would have movies like Casual Foal and Brokeback Mountain and in and out all of which made lots of money, they still never seemed to break that glass ceiling. The argument was always in place. I remember when I wrote my play Jeffrey, which was this off-Broadway play, and it was set the peak of the AIDS crisis, and it was my tribute to the, the wit of people who had, you know, there, was, there were no medical treatments at that point. The subject matter was being avoided in the mainstream media, certainly by the government. And every actor who read for us was warned, often sadly by their representation, by their agents and managers, who were often gay people themselves, that if they appeared in this play, their careers would be over. And which was why the, the cast we ended up with, who are just sublime and so dear to my heart and were wonderful performers like Harriet Harris, John Michael Higgins, Tom Hewitt, after the play opened and turned into a success, they could not stop working and they were cast in movies, on TV. So there, you know how it, it becomes frustrating in terms of how many times you have to break the barrier. Although what was um, particularly nuts, when I wrote Sister Act originally as a vehicle for Bette Midler to play the nun in disguise. And I worked on it for over four years and Disney was uh, optioned it instantly and everybody was so excited about it, except Bette was very <laughs> reluctant. And I've worked with Bette many times and she is every bit as, as brilliant as you want her to be. She's one of the few movie stars who really is that exciting it's not that she's on every moment but there's some there's a talent there that's so undeniable but she had this weird superstition about playing a nun she thought people wouldn't accept her and everyone kept explaining you're not playing a nun you're playing someone disguised as a nun this did not penetrate but um but the way in which the gay subject matter came said so somehow to try to convince her the studio kept sending me on different missions to do research on convent life. I was sent to a co oh, spend overnight at the Regina Lourdes convent in Pennsylvania. There was a movie once called Come to the Stable that was shot there. So, and I was, ca I was in endless meetings, entirely filled usually with gay Jewish men to talk about Catholic dogma. And what part of my research there was a very uh, a successful and groundbreaking work called, called uh, Breaking the Silence, which was about how many nuns were lesbians, because it was a real refuge. Convent life, especially if women did not want to get married in decades past, a convent often would make sense as a place where they could be with other women, where they could be away from the constant pressure to marry, to be heterosexual. So imagine if you are in a meeting with Disney executives explaining to them how popular lesbian nuns are, <laughs> that did not really fly. <laughs> um, there's also, and now, Joel, I'm going to blame you because you broke the, the profanity barrier. <laughs> there was a moment when we were casting all of the convent nuns, the backup nuns for the movie, <laughs> and the, Mark Shaman, the wonderful composer who did Hairspray and has uh, Some Like It Hot on Broadway right now, he was our music director, and he brought in every cabaret artist, every great singer, Annie Golden, 
um, Mary Wicks, uh, just everyone you could, so it was just this feast, and we would sit there, and everyone behind the table, the director, myself, Scott Rudin, the producer, we were all gay show queens, so we were in heaven, you know, just having all these extraordinary singers. And I remember the Disney executives when we brought in our favorites, who were these just brilliant performers. The Disney executives often said, you know, she's wonderful and she's got a killer voice, but do you think she's fuckable? <laughs> yes. And you think, they're playing nuns. <laughs> and so it was, that, again, those situations you can encounter in show business where you don't know how to answer because the behavior is so appalling. But, but that's why there are no lesbian nuns in Sister Act. <laughs> and that, God bless her, has since apologized. She says, I don't know what I was thinking. I should have done that movie. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's, but in terms of gay subject matter, you just have to keep at it. And I think television has, has been far more welcoming. As Joel mentioned, that that's where outperformers, you know, whether it's Neil Patrick Harris, Matt Bomer, all sorts of people are, have become television stars. In movies, it is still, you know, confounding how the resistance still and that sense of, okay, who counts as a movie star? And I remember when we were shooting In and Out with the glorious Kevin Kine and, and Tom Selleck. And we were, um, we were shooting a big climactic scene where they kiss each other. And we shot it, even though the movie was supposed to take place in Indiana, we shot it uh, out in New Jersey. And there was a huge traffic jam because of, of the shooting. And Kevin and Tom were wonderful because they, when they were going to do this kiss, they knew they couldn't hold back. They couldn't protect themselves. They couldn't pretend. They had to really be that passionate. So they went take after take, and it was just so sexy and so funny ever at the time. And I could see all the people in their cars craning to see, and I thought, if they knew what Magnum was up to, <laughs> you know? So it was, um, it's always a challenge. I think, yeah, in our lifetimes, things have improved. There is still enormous progress to be made. Um, <clears throat> I have, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Will and Grace, I think, of course, erased many, many barriers. I think mean, it's the best thing ever happened to gaydom, if you will. But um, <clears throat> when I was at NBC, um, the head of the movie department came over to me with a script. And he said, I don't know about this one. Can you read it? And it was called An Early Frost. And it was the first television, um, first anything, first major media thing to deal with AIDS. And... Um, I read it, and the head of the movie department said, what do you think? I said, it's a great movie. He said, how do we get a go-ahead for this? I said, it's very simple. I'm going to call Lily Tartikoff, Brandon Tartikoff's wife. I was very close to both of them. And I said to Lily, I said, Lily, I'm going to send you a script. When you finish reading it, call me. This is the wife of. You can always get things by going to the wife or husband of, I found out. So uh, Lily read it and called me back, and she said, it's absolutely beautiful. I said, well, you tell your husband that you're not going to sleep with him until he gives us a go-ahead. And while she didn't commit to that exactly, uh, the show did get a go-ahead. But then came the casting part. And it was turned down by, I forget the list of people, and the truth is, because I'm 80 years old and forget things, we wound up with a wonderful cast, and the movie was the highest rated movie of like a one of the three that year, and not one single complaint to NBC. You know, so that, that broke down barriers, and I'm, 
you know, I'm, I may not have been very political or something, but, um, but I think uh, I, th that was my contribution to this. Yeah, no, I remember when we were um, having meetings on the script of In and Out, which was rewritten the way every script is many times, and I would be in meetings with the Paramount executives, and I could always tell whenever they got nervous that it was getting too gay, they would say, Paul, don't you think that it's gotten repetitive? <laughs> Until finally when they said it one time too many, and I said, well, you know, actually, I was born repetitive. <laughs> and they never asked that question again. So it was, and that also was a case of when Sherry Lansing, who was at Paramount at that time, got behind the movie. And that was, that's how things happen. I think when powerful individuals put their foot down and say, no, we're doing this movie, we're doing this show, we're doing this play. So it's, yeah, it's, it takes a certain courage combined with a lot of clout. Well, I want to, I mean, I could sit here for the next seven years asking both of you questions, but I want to open it up to the audience before we wrap it up. Is there anyone who has a question they'd like to ask of either of these incredible writers? Are the books that you have currently, are they going to be made into feature films? Good. Actually, Joe, yours should be, my God. Well, my, it's a miniseries, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would it's love it, and Ben Platt can play it, or let's see, Andrew Garfield. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I, Farrell Covington was published yesterday, <laughs> so who knows where it will end up. But um, I'm just, I'm in love with it as a novel, so it's, you know, I, I, that would all just be gravy. I'd like to hear you both describe the process by which you came to title your books. Uh, it's easy for me. I was, I don't know where it came from. Sex, drugs, and if you follow with something that's not, you know, rock and roll, it gets a laugh. And so I had the title before I wrote the book. <laughs> you know, and then I added the subtitle, Confessions of a Casting Director, and I thought that was funny. So that's how my title happened. Yeah, mine, it was, when I started the novel, I knew... In the, in the largest and most vague sense what areas I wanted to touch on wh where I wanted the book to go but it wasn't until the third page that Farrell Covington appeared completely unplanned and unexpected and would not stop talking and I fell wildly in love with him and I thought okay this is where the book lives this is how we tell the story this is how we make it delicious and deeply emotional and in no way a lecture or a dry historical piece and so I knew that Farrell Covington was what I was what I was selling what I was crazy about and Limits of Style was actually a line from Jeffrey when it's when a character there's a long-term couple in that book and that play rather where um, one member of the couple dies of AIDS and the other one who is an interior designer is so bereft and almost unable to speak and he looks at a mutual friend and says the limits of style you know that sense that okay there's a way in which being gay and having a, an outsized personality and committing to a life of style can protect you or can can make you feel that you're living the fullest possible life but when you're battling an illness when you're battling the world's great tragedies that can fail you and I kind of wanted this book to be about how powerful style can be in every aspect. 
And so I loved combining that with Farrell. I think he's the guy with the banner. You know, he's the guy who stands for the power of style. So that that's where it came from, from everywhere. It's also a great title, because ever since I read it, I can't get the phrase Farrell Covington out of my mind. It's a great earworm. Oh, good. You know. It's, uh, you know, I'm going to do this backwards, um, because we just jumped into this conversation. But some of us have already read this book, and so there's been nothing that we've discussed that's confusing or, or a mystery to us. But maybe before we end, can you just give sort of the elevator pitch about what your book is about? Oh, God, the book is about me. <laughs> it's, it's a it's Joel a, Third story. <laughs> I, I mean, I've never tried when you try to get the only when I'm doing, you know, emails can I and, and Facebook, can I condense things? I sure. can't do it on the fly. But, you know, it's about a, you know, a perfectly normal, lower middle class Jewish boy in Brooklyn who just did everything he could to get out and did. <laughs> And is that a one-liner? Or it's two? perfect. Okay. Yeah. Well, mine, I think I've mentioned some of this, is this epic romance that endures for over 50 years. And it's about how that is possible. It's also because one guy in this relationship is the son of one of America's most powerful, wealthiest, and most deeply conservative families. It's about how you survive that and what deals are made. Because I've noticed in a lot of very powerful families, the Koch brothers, the Trumps, you name it, there will be a gay kid. (laughs) And I think, okay, how do they navigate that? And beyond that, there was one other element that inspired Farrell Covington. This was when I was very young and I was applying to colleges and I was on the train from New York to New Jersey and a man started talking to me. It was not in any way sexual, but he was extraordinarily handsome and dashing and stylish in a way I had never encountered. He also had the the single most perfect piece of luggage I'd ever seen to this day. (laughs) And he told me when he found out I was, you know, on the brink of college, a set of sort of life lessons, which I sadly don't remember a word of because I was so captivated by the man himself. But I remember thinking, okay, there is a life here that I am going to aspire to. There's a level of personality and wit and everything else. And I, that's what this book is about. It's about how do you live the fullest and most romantic and most passionate life possible and how do you stay true to the people you care about and both of you have just delighted me to no end with your conversation and and generosity today and your incredible books and all of the things you know i am the generation that grew up watching every single thing that you cast (laughs) and and so many of my friends are because of you where they are today and it's really an amazing thing to say thank you to both of you for your impact on our culture for your impact in moving stories forward that are more representative of the world that we would like to live in. And I really encourage everyone listening to buy uh, Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season and Farrell Covington and the Limits of Style. Um, Thank you all for being here today. You're going to get to meet the authors now and bring your books to them to sign. We are here every week at 1230 in the Reading Room on Wednesday celebrating the most magnificent authors of our time. I wish you all an incredible day and enjoy Bryant Park. Are we now singing the most magnificent authors? Little known fact, 
Now you can watch hours and hours of my interviews with your favorite artists as they talk about the art they love to make on YouTube. That's right. I have a YouTube channel. It's called Little Known Facts with Alana Levine. Catchy, right? Subscribe and enjoy. Little Known Fact, if you want to donate to the podcast, just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com forward slash donations. Thank you so much in advance for your generosity. Have a great day. worked hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft lifelock ultimate plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement lifelock alerts you to identity threats you might miss and if your identity is stolen your dedicated u.s-based restoration specialist will work to fix it let lifelock help protect what you've worked so hard for save 25 off your first year on lifelock ultimate plus at lifelock.com aware terms apply